Well, we had intended to have a baptism this morning, uh, but as is sometimes the norm for mobile churches like us, we are dependent upon a number of things, namely the weather, and so that's not possible today. Uh, So what I wanted to do today then is take advantage of the opportunity we have, and I really just wanted to share with you my best answer to a singular question this morning. And that question is, why get baptized? Why should you get baptized? I want to answer that as best I can this morning, uh, knowing now that there maybe is time and space for other people who want to respond to this call for baptism. Uh, There really, I'll say this at the outset, there's one prerequisite for being baptized. The, The prerequisite for being baptized is that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, There is no other prerequisites. You don't have to go through long, lengthy classes. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone else. You simply have to be able to answer yes to that question. Uh, And so then, really, it frees us up in responding to baptism and what it is. And so I wanted to give, uh, take, uh, seize on this opportunity this morning and really be able to answer this question for anyone who is kind of on the fence or processing, or those who have responded but maybe need a deeper reality of what is going on. So let me start by asking you a question, a hypothetical question, and that is, does your family, I guess it's rhetorical, not hypothetical, does your family have any strange traditions? Now, you don't need to share it out loud, but start thinking about some of the strange traditions, and probably most of them, because I've given the adjective strange, are ones you probably don't talk about, except in your family, right? Uh, well, this is a story that has been told in my family for generations, it seems like. Uh, my uncle had a group of friends, and he went over to their house one day after church, and they had this big lunch together. The family is named the Rapolis, and this big Italian lunch together. And after lunch, the family tradition, my uncle had no idea that this was true, But the family tradition was that they stripped down to their undergarments and took naps on the living room floor. And so my uncle Gary, over at his friend's, the Rapoli's house, after a wonderful large Italian lunch, had no idea what to do with that crazy tradition. And he tried to figure it out, and his time at the Rapoli's house was cut very short, exit stage left, never to be seen again, but always to be talked about anytime our larger family gathered. Uh, usually it was my mom who would bring it up, say, Gary, tell us about the Rapolis, right? For many people on the outside, they look at this weird thing, some of the weird things we do in the church, and they say, that is bizarre. And maybe chief amongst them is baptism. Why on earth do adults say, yes, I want to go into this strange pool at a church service, and yes, in my clothes, I want you to dunk me backwards and bring me back up. What is the point of all this craziness? Think about it from the outside. Many of you have grown up in the church, and baptism, whether kind of done uh, more liturgically uh, for infants or or recent converts, uh, we think that's wonderful as well, or or done by immersion as we're talking about uh, today, is kind of normal for us because we grow up in this. But if you're really looking at it from the outside in, it's bizarre. And really the first place we see it happening is with the ministry of John the Baptist, right? That's why he's called John the Baptist, because what he was doing was weird. It was different. It was other. So other that it was drawing crowds and people asking, what on earth is going on here? 
And so it's important for us as we think about it, rather than simply kind of just going through the motions of, well, we know this is what Christians do. They get baptized. To pause this morning and ask the question, well, yeah, but why? And so hopefully we can answer that question together. My best answer to this question is this sentence, and then we're going to try to unpack it the rest of our time together. That baptism is an act of obedience that announces and aligns ourselves with God's gracious rescue in Jesus. Baptism is an act of obedience that announces and aligns ourselves with God's gracious rescue in Jesus. All right, let's figure this out together. We've said now that baptism is an act of obedience. What do we mean by this? We simply mean that the scriptures in the New Testament, for those of us who are following Jesus, it tells us that we should be baptized. So at the very core of the, or the very beginning, kind of basic of this whole definition or understanding of why is because Jesus said so, right? We'll start there and hopefully get a little better than that. Jesus says at the end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, kind of his last commission to his disciples, he says, listen, go into all the world, right? And preach the gospel. And there's those who respond, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he follows it up by saying, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So in other words, part of what he's commanded them is to go and speak the gospel and to baptize people. And so this idea of baptism is really instituted as a kind of big, world, uh, kind of church-wide practice through Jesus' own commission. He says, listen, if you respond to the gospel, a, a right next step is baptism. And likewise, we see it really all throughout the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, where people's uh, more story is recorded rather than kind of letters from Paul and Peter and, uh, and John and folks like that, where people are receiving uh, the gospel in faith and really, quite frankly, being baptized almost immediately after responding to the gospel. In fact, at the Pentecost, at the story of Pentecost, and for those of you who are familiar with this story, Pentecost is when God uh, kind of sends his spirit down in power. Uh, the, the, Jesus' apostles, his disciples were all kind of gathered in an upper room. Things were uncertain. It was a crazy time. They were praying. And the spirit comes in power, you might remember, and uh, the tongues of fire appear over them. And Peter stands up and kind of boldly proclaims this gospel message of God's gracious rescue. And it says the people are cut through to their heart, kind of, a, kind of deep literary language of saying they get it. And they understand this affects me in a deep way. And so they say, what should we do? And Peter responds with a pretty simple answer. He says, you should do two things. He says, repent and be baptized. Right? He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he says. Now, he is not, and we'll say this in a minute, suggesting that somehow baptism forgives your sins. We'll talk about what he means by that here in a second. But what he's saying is that baptism is really tied into this idea of aligning yourself no longer with your ways or the world's ways, but with Jesus' ways. And so, 
through Jesus' message to the disciples, through Peter and the other disciples' message in the New Testament, we see that really we're called to, as people of faith, respond uh, in obedience by being baptized. It's an act of obedience. So I said it's an act of obedience that announces God's gracious rescue. And this is true uh, at the very core of it. When someone is baptized, what they are doing is making a very public statement about at least three things. They're making a very public statement about their, their view of the world. They're making a very public statement about their view of God. And they're making a very public statement about their view of themselves. In baptism, they're making these three public statements, these three announcements, as it were. Basically saying that the world has gone its own way. That the world that God created has kind of turned away from him and has pursued its own livelihood, its own effectiveness, its own quote-unquote success, its own significance, prominence on its own. It has, in kind of core Bible language, rebelled against God's loving rule. So it says, it sets up this idea of the world as kind of one trajectory of life. In baptism, we make the public announcement that we believe that about the world. We also make the public announcement that God's kingdom is how the world should be. And that God, in his loving grace, in his mercy and kindness, has continually interjected himself, and ultimately through Jesus, to write the wrong course of the world. And then baptism makes the public statement that I personally have decided to step outside the stream of this world and into the stream of God's kingdom. Right? Baptism is a public announcement. Think about it in the scriptures. This stuff is happening Throughout the course of life, they are not waiting for a Sunday morning to gather together uh, like we kind of do in our, our new modern traditions. Someone was responding to faith. They were going to the river. They were getting baptized. They were finding water. They were getting baptized. Whoever was there to see it was there to see it. It was a public announcement of affirmation to the church and a prophetic announcement of truth to an onlooking world that this world is headed the wrong way, that God has interjected to 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 make all things new and all things right, and that in my baptism I am done with the world and brought new to life with God. It's a public announcement. And it's also an aligning of ourselves to God's gracious rescue. What I mean by an aligning is basically that baptism in, in its very simplest sense and I think maybe most beautiful and most profound sense, is an acting out of the salvation story that God has written for our world and that we, by faith, have applied to our lives. Baptism is not to achieve salvation. It is not to take hold of salvation. It is to speak out loud in symbolic action about the truth of our already salvation that God has done, right? I think it's one of the most compelling reasons why we baptize people the way we do. 
uh, you might know this, but baptism is, or baptize was kind of not an English word. There's a Greek word called baptizo, right? That's the Greek verb for baptize. We looked at that and read it, and we said, what do we make of this? And we said, we're not sure. Let's invent a word. And so we invented the word baptize to say, we'll do what they did, right? And the Greek word for baptizo really isn't a word for immersion. It was really a word that was used kind of of cloth dyers. They would take big pieces of cloth, and they would submerge them in dye so that the cloth would kind of be enveloped and saturated in this dye and would take on a whole new identity because of its submersion in it. And in that way, we kind of see the beauty of baptism in its symbolic sense of being submerged into the kingdom of God and brought out new, symbolically. A new identity, a new life, a new orientation towards our creator. This is the symbolism, I think, that is going on with this word. And listen, I'd pause and say again, there are many other uh, fantastic traditions and segments of the Christian church who would suggest that Baptism really can, can be or should be done in another way, perhaps uh, for, for younger folks, uh, perhaps for babies that are, are more recently born that are kind of being introduced into the covenant reality uh, of Christian faith. And I think that's wonderful. This talk today is not to speak against that in any way. If you've been baptized in that way, uh, hopefully you know already that we do not look down upon that. We do not suggest to you that you need a different baptism. We think sometimes people are called to another one, and we would welcome kind of you doing that. We've landed on this reality of baptism simply because it seems to be the best literal reading of what's happening in the New Testament in these instances, in these cases. It's an aligning, a dramatic reenacting of what God has done. So then we pause and ask ourselves, what are we dramatically reenacting what is going on here. Well, we're reenacting what I've called God's gracious rescue. So let me just tell you a synopsis of the story of God quickly and how it relates beautifully to the symbolism of baptism. You might remember in the creation story that it is God who speaks creation into existence What theologians say, ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. God is the creator and sustainer of the world and the universe. And there's this interesting thing that's going on in the perfect world of creation, where God creates man, and there's this loving, connected relationship between man and woman and God, and they're living in harmony and in community and in right relationship, and everything is as it should be. The Edenic story is not just for beautiful literature. It's to demonstrate to us God's intention in creation. And interestingly enough, there's this weird, these weird statements about water in creation. That the water is separated, right? Water really becomes a placeholder for judgment or separation all throughout God's story. Why that is, we're not sure. But it has that that placeholder, as it were, so that you know the story. 
when Adam and Eve begin the human tradition of rebellion, of living their own way, of turning to their own effort and their own kingdom, of thumbing their nose at God's way and God's rule, it leads to this kind of, this kind of climax where the world is in chaos and there's rebellion and everything is out of sorts and all things are wrong. And we get to the story that many of us are familiar with uh, from childhood Sunday school classes, Noah and the flood. Remember? It's at Noah and the flood where God looks on Noah and says, listen, judgment is coming. The, 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 the waters of judgment are coming and, and there is no longer going to be this this." divine protection of humanity because humanity has gone their own way. But he says to Noah, I want you to build an ark. This strange request of an ancient farmer. Build a giant boat. And of course, you know the story. He's mocked and he's made fun of and he's building this boat and eventually the rains come. 40 days and 40 nights, it rains and the earth is flooded and Noah and the contents of the ark are preserved from the flood. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that baptism symbolically reminds us of God's gracious rescue out of water. Because it doesn't just end with Noah and the flood. Generations later, Humanity and specifically the people of Israel find themselves in a very similar situation where they've gone their own way, turned their own way, sought their own provision, and have moved away from God's rule and reign, find themselves in this massive exile in a foreign land called Egypt. And when God moves in mercy to rescue his people, it should not surprise us that this big moment of rescue happens when the people of God reach the shores of a huge body of water. And God, through Moses and Moses' staff, parts this Red Sea. And the people of Israel walk through, it says, on dry ground. And as they make it through, the, the chasing Egyptian army fills the basin of this great body of water and it closes in on them in judgment. And so in these two kind of gigantic stories of rescue that compose the greater story of God, we see that God's rescue seems to constantly be symbolically out of water. So it should not surprise us that when baptism happens and we're looking towards God's rescue, we hear words like, he went down into the water and he came out up out of the water. That the use of water, that the submerged, being submerged in water and being lifted up out of the water is meant to, in dramatic fashion, tell the story of God's covenant rescue of his people away from the ways of this world, away from the impending judgment on this world, out of no good of their own, but only out of the grace, the love, and the mercy of God himself.
when Moses, uh, after he's led the people through this, and we understand the Israelites get into all kinds of difficult circumstances in the wilderness, but as Moses is preparing to go up on Mount Sinai, you might remember this story, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the, the law from God, this basic kind of structure of what would it mean to be able to live again in close proximity with God in kind of a new Edenic fashion. Moses goes up to receive this, and really what's going on, if you can read deeply into the story, is a a kind of marriage structure. In Old Testament times, and, and really up into the days of Jesus, Jewish weddings uh, kind of were agreed upon, (laughs) uh, less than they were kind of these great love stories. And part of the agreed upon reality of the wedding was was what was called a ketubah in Hebrew. The ketubah is basically simply translated uh, a wedding covenant, a marriage covenant. And if you read well into what's going on in this story of Moses, this Ten Commandments, as we've kind of summarized them, is really a ketubah. It's a marriage covenant. It's a marriage contract. What is expected of the bride? What is expected of God's people? So before this all happens, in keeping up with kind of Hebrew uh, wedding traditions of the day, Moses calls the people to go and be cleansed in a ceremonial bath. That was called in Hebrew a mikvah. Mikvah. A mikvah was a ceremonial bath. A a bride who was going to be married, she would go and she would be ceremonially cleansed. Mikvahs were used for other realities too as well. Uh, To be cleansed for marriage, to be consecrated and cleansed for these things. So that we could enter into this covenant relationship with God. In our baptism, we are symbolically reenacting the beauty of the mikvah, the cleansing bath that enables our union with God, a relationship with Him. Just as in the mikvah itself, it wasn't the bath that cleansed them, it was the act of faith that cleansed them. And in the same way for us, as the act of faith in receiving the truth of the gospel, not the baptism itself, yet in our baptism, we are announcing to the world that we have been cleansed through the blood of Christ. And then in the same way, when the people of God finally make it to the edge of the promised land, this is what this whole journey has been about, right? Moses is now dead the, the generation uh, that has grumbled against God is now dead. Joshua has emerged as a new leader of the people. They find themselves at the opening chapters of the book of Joshua on the edge of the Jordan River, finally ready to enter into this promised land of blessing that God had offered them in this kind of marriage relationship between God and his people. And Once again, God says to his people, consecrate yourself. For tomorrow, I'll do great things amongst you. And as Joshua leads the people into the promised land, the Jordan River, once again, water symbolically, parts. 
and the people of God walk into this land of blessing, of fullness of life, of everything God had promised through water. Now you have to know something, church. When John the Baptist started baptizing people in the Jordan River, he didn't pick it because it was a cool spot. He picked it, most people, most scholars are ready and willing to believe, because he was very, um, very carefully attempting to reenact the entrance of the people of God into God's land of blessing. You might remember in the days of John the Baptist, in the days of Jesus, the Israelites are conquered people again. Rome is ruling them and ruling them oppressively. And they are longing to have this right relationship with God again, where they can be God's people and God can be their God and everything can be as it should be. And so they're longing to cleanse themselves. The Pharisees are saying, we'll cleanse ourselves through being obedient people. Religion, religion, religion. The Sadducees are saying, we'll cleanse ourselves by aligning ourselves with the Roman and gaining power, 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 power. And John the Baptist is saying, we need to look to God for his help in a coming Messiah. And to do it, we need to remember God's gracious rescue. And so his ministry sets itself up on the Jordan River to every day reenact through baptism the entry of the people of God into the life that God had promised them. And in the same way in our baptism, we are symbolically reenacting God's gracious rescue out of water through his cleansing into the life that he promises us. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. And in our baptism, in dramatic fashion, we say, yes. I align myself with that message. So into this long tradition, and John the Baptist now instituting baptism, comes Jesus himself In Christmas, we celebrate his amazing arrival, the incarnation, God amongst us, into our mess and filth. And one of the very first things we see Jesus do in his public ministry is get baptized. And this is weird, if you pause for a minute. Why? Right? John the Baptist is is giving us all these messages like, Hey, there's this guy coming. He's way better than me. I'm baptizing with water. He's going to do these amazing things. Baptize you with the Spirit. Baptize you with fire. He's so impressive, I can't even tie his shoes. And Jesus first shows up and says, John, baptize me. This is not how the plot should play itself out. And yet, if you believe everything I've just told you, then this is exactly how the plot should play out. Because Jesus is dramatically and symbolically acting out the divine rescue of God. And at its conclusion, as he rises, what happens? A dove descends from heaven. Where do we remember doves descending? Maybe in the story of Noah and the ark. When God rescues his people and the dove finds land to rest upon. Jesus is a new Noah. Jesus 
is an ark for a people in need of rescue. God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. New creation is amongst you. And secretly hidden in this story, and yet flashing in neon letters, is the name of Jesus himself. You might not know this, but Jesus is another transliteration. Jesus' real name in Hebrew is Yeshua. The right translation of Jesus is Joshua. And in this dramatic moment of Jesus' baptism, God is saying, my rescue, my whole story has been pointing to this moment. That in Jesus, God's rescue finds its ultimate reality. Jesus is the Joshua who will lead you into the land of promise. Jesus, through his blood, will cleanse you in the mikvah bath. Jesus, as the true ark and the right Noah, saves you out of the judgment of this world. And from that place in the power of the Spirit, Jesus goes on to do massive miracles, but it all leads to a climactic moment that once again kind of doesn't make sense. When Jesus lays down his life on a cross for us, to use baptism language, in order that we might be rescued out of the water, Jesus descends into the depths of the water. Jesus provides a path through the water by being overcome by the water in his death. And God accepts his extraordinary sacrifice and announces his victory when three days later, the Red Sea is parted forever. And the Jordan River is stopped up forever. As a stone is rolled away from a tomb, and the rightful man who embodies the gracious rescue of God rises and emphatically reminds us that he has come to give us life and life to the fullest. And it's on that that baptism takes on even greater meaning. While we are still making a public announcement about the world and about God and ourselves, and while we are still aligning ourselves uh, symbolically and dramatically with God's gracious rescue out of water, through cleansing, into the life he promises we are now also emphatically saying that he has done this once and for all in and through Jesus. And Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, something we should hear again this morning. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Listen, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized 
into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have new life. Friends, in your baptism in two weeks, in your baptism that has already taken place, in your baptism that will take place in the future, you are acting in obedience to Jesus' call. You are publicly announcing that the world has gone its own way, that God has provided a kingdom that is right, that you are stepping out of the world and into God's kingdom. In your baptism, you are symbolically and dramatically aligning yourself with God's gracious rescue out of water. In our baptism, we go under and we come out to announce God's gracious rescue. And you are emphatically saying that it has been accomplished once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. That when I am baptized, I am symbolically saying that I have been joined with Jesus in his death. And that because I've been joined with Jesus in his death, I am also raised to life with him because he has paid the penalty of the ways of the world. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, Adam, you talk a lot about the gospel. Can you just sum it up for me? Let me sum it up for you. God created the world. And he loves it. God created you. And he loves you. He's never stopped loving you. We've done all kinds of crazy crap to make him stop loving us. And he's never stopped loving us. This world is way messed up and he has never stopped loving this world. No, the story of God, the gospel, tells us that God is a relentless, loving pursuer of this world so that it would not end in judgment but would end in true Life that can start now. And he has accomplished it in and through the arrival, the death, and the victory of Jesus in his resurrection. And when we embrace this gospel message, we are not simply buying a ticket that we can cash in someday in the future after our death for a post-mortem train trip to heaven. We thank God for that. I shouldn't make light of it. This is true, and we thank God for it. But what you have embraced in the gospel is the life that Jesus offers now. And in your baptism, you are saying to the world, it is true for me, and it can be true for you too. A public statement, an announcement, an aligning of your life to Christ. We have bought into the lie that we can accomplish some kind of semblance of life for our own. And the God of the universe is relentless in pursuing you and inviting you into the true life that you long for. 
And maybe this morning, for you, it starts there. You say, you know what, I've I've believed all this gospel stuff kind of in religious language. I never understood that this was a whole universal story that was going on. This morning, you can do business with God. He does not leave. He will not stop pursuing you. He doesn't get tired of you. He puts up with your resisting of him. And maybe this morning, if you've never been baptized, it's time for you to publicly announce, I'm with Jesus. And to dramatically, in crazy fashion, by going underwater and coming right back up, say that God has rescued me out of judgment. He has cleansed me by his own doing. And he has ushered me into the life that only he can provide. Can I pray with you?